Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that he has come and that he lived the perfect life that we could not live and that he died on the cross for our sins. And Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that for those of us who have lost sight of the Lordship of Jesus, that he is our master and that he deserves to be our master. And that, Lord, we are called to be the constant companion, the lifelong, eternal lifelong partner with Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would renew our sense of ministry. And again, Father, wash us, cleanse us, sanctify us, occupy us. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also was baptizing in Enon, near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, or Master, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptized, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friends of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. In the 1980s, um, Bob Dylan had a not so well-known hit called You Have to Serve Somebody. He basically said, it can be the devil or it can be the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. Jesus said, when a person has two masters, he will either love the one or he will cling to the other. And the reality is, whether we like to admit it or not, each and every one of us has a master. We balk at that word. It is a strange and unwelcome word in our vocabulary because we are a culture that is fiercely independent. We don't want to serve anybody except ourselves. But yet the reality is we will serve someone. And it will be the devil or it will be the Lord. But we will serve someone. In the Bible, the word translated rabbi or master carries with it the idea of instructor, teacher. But it meant so much more. The reality is that Jesus is the teacher, the rabbi, the ultimate source. We might even say the final source of truth concerning the things of God. Jesus is the only teacher who can show us the way to know God. Jesus is the only teacher who can show us what it means to be accepted by God and forgiven by God. He is the only teacher who can show us what it's like to walk with God. 
And this section of Scripture begins with a debate, an argument concerning issues of purity and cleansing, and then continues with an affirmation by John the Baptist concerning the identity, the authority, and the mission of Jesus. We know that John the Baptist was selected by God to represent his son. That job included three things. Remember, the ministry of John was to clear the way. That means to remove the obstacles from the minds and hearts of others so that they would be ready for the Messiah. The second part of his job was to prepare the way or to promote repentance on the part of the nation so that Messiah, Jesus, would be accepted. And the third part of his job was to get out of the way. To step aside once the Messiah has been introduced. You have to understand something. In his day, John the Baptist had a huge following. Imagine film star meets rock star. Literally tens of thousands of people would appear in a wilderness in order to hear John the Baptist preach and speak. He had an amazing and significant impact on the kingdom of God. The ministry of Jesus was on the rise, but it was still relatively obscure. Somehow, the purpose of John's ministry was beginning to be lost even among his own disciples. Remember, his job was to clear the way, to point the way. And then get out of the way. John's ministry existed to point the nation to the Messiah. And sometimes we lose sight of our ministry. You see, the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ is to be the constant companion of Christ. You are saved. You are cleansed. You are healed. You are delivered. You are made new so that you can walk with God and be with God, be his constant companion throughout time and eternity. The ministry of the church of Jesus Christ is to worship the Lord. It is to disciple the saints and it's to to reach out to the lost. That's why we talk about upreach and inreach and outreach. Jesus is our groom. He is the master. Jesus is the new master. It is not our job. It is not our responsibility to point people to Geno, to point people to Calvary, to point people to this church, to even point people to our philosophy of ministry. It's to point people to Christ. So, he is the master. Jesus is the only one worth serving. Jesus is the only one who has a heavenly origin. Jesus is the only one who knows the truth firsthand. Jesus is the only one whose testimony always and under every circumstance agrees with God. Jesus is the only one who experienced the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit without measure, without limit. Jesus is the only one who received complete and final authority from the Father. And so, in order to deal with confusion and conflict and concern, John the Baptist does what he knows he needs to do. Point people to Jesus. Look again, Jesus is the only Messiah. In verse 22, it says, after these things, he's talking about the things that we've already seen. That is, Jesus has come to the temple and cleansed it. Jesus has sat in the night and talked with Nicodemus. After these things, Jesus and his disciples come into the land of Judea, and there he remains with them and is baptized. The ministry of Jesus begins in Kephanahum, Capernaum, in the Galilee, and now it's drifting south. And when it says Jesus remained with them, the word is very interesting in the original language. Remained is diatreben. That is, he spent time with them. The idea is more than just spending time. It carries with it 
considerable time, a great deal of time. In other words, now in the first year of Jesus's ministry, he is spending time sharing, ministering, preaching, teaching. The text seems to suggest the possibility that Jesus was baptizing. The grammatical structure allows for it, but it only occurs right here. More scholars seem to indicate that it is more likely that Jesus did not baptize, but rather the disciples were the ones who were doing the baptizing. And in John chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Now John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and they were baptized. John begins with a description of the location of where this dispute is taking place. The actual location is lost to antiquity. However, when it says John also was baptizing in Enon, Enon is a word which means abounding in springs. In our own front range, if you go about 70 miles to the south of us, we have Colorado Springs. It's always amazing to me why they called it Colorado Springs, because guess what's not there? There's no springs. There's no water. Why would you call a place the springs when it has no springs? Well, this is different. There's water there. And this is interesting in and of itself to me, because it doesn't say, and John received a revelation from God that he was to go to the springs. It doesn't say, by a word of prophecy, he went to the springs. Guess what? He went to where the water was. Because where the water was, was the instrument of his ministry. Cleansing, purification, repentance. You'll note John doesn't go where the people are. He goes where the springs are. I always found that interesting because when Chuck Smith, my pastor, was asked years and years ago, well, why did you go to Costa Mesa? And he goes, well, I wanted to be near the beach so I could surf. And we would go to the ocean, and that's where we would be baptized. We're still in the first year of Jesus' ministry. Some scholars call this the calm year. It's about circa A.D. 27. It's followed by the crowded year, circa 28 and 29. And then the closing year, 30, 31. Both ministries were operating in the same territory. And you can imagine with both ministries operating in the same territory, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John experienced a little bit of conflict. Have you noticed how territorial people are? You should. I watch you every Sunday. Every Sunday in the first service and the second service, people come and they have their favorite place where they sit. This is my place. This is where I sit. So much so that if somebody else sits in your seat, you go, this person must be visiting. How could they not know that this is my seat? There are numerous examples of conflict in the Bible when Two groups of people are too close for comfort. Like in Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, where it talks about the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. And they became so plentiful that half had to go in one direction and another had to go in another direction. And it says in verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. In that particular passage, John the Apostle, who's writing this book, is orienting us in space and time. John is giving the reader the chronology of Jesus' ministry. He's basically saying this incident is taking place sometime after the wilderness temptations, sometime before John's imprisonment. John will be imprisoned by Herod, and he will eventually lose his life. But the period in between is not spoken of in either Matthew or Mark or Luke. It's only found here. And then in verse 25 and 26, it says, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi or Master, He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, 
behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And you have to understand part of what's happening in this particular passage. The Jews were questioning the value of John's baptism. These are the religious leaders. Remember, the religious leaders have come to Jerusalem. They're basically saying, okay, is your baptism, your purification, is this from God? If they're from God, then why are these people flocking to Jesus and the disciples of Jesus? If John's baptism provided cleansing of the heart, if John's baptism met people's needs, why should you turn to Jesus? And the charge cut John's disciples to the heart. Why indeed? Why turn to Jesus when you can easily return to John? It's interesting to me how many people debate and defer over issues of baptism. Probably the most asked question on my radio program are tongues, tithing, and baptism. And I think it's because people are preoccupied with the externals. But listen carefully. The question of cleansing is not irrelevant. How can a human heart be cleansed? Can the need for human beings to experiencing cleansing and freedom from guilt and freedom from shame and and freedom from sin really be met? How is a person forgiven? How is a sin washed away? When I was in the seventh grade, it was during the holidays. I went on a shoplifting spree. I didn't go shopping. I went shoplifting. And it was brazen. We would go into a place and I would literally steal like a coffee cake and a drink. And I would literally go to their own counter and eat my pie and drink my drink that I'd stolen right out of their refrigerator. And you guessed it. I got Not only did I get caught, but they called the cops. The cops came and they took me down to the station and they put me in a little uh, holding cell. That's where I found religion. (laughs) Cried out to Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God, am I in trouble. Oh, man, oh, man, am I in trouble when my dad finds out, when my mom finds out, oh, God, oh, God, I'm so sorry. But I was sorry I got caught. I wasn't really sorry for my sin. But there was something inside of me that wanted to be. I wanted cleansing from the guilt. I wanted cleansing from the sin. What should I do? Should I go to church? Should I make a good confession? What should I do? Should I go somewhere? Where can I go for cleansing? Do I go to the priest? Do I go to religion? Do I go to religious leaders? Where do I go for cleansing? And so the Jewish leaders with John the Baptist disciples is asking an important question. Where do we go for cleansing? The word translated dispute, by the way, in the Greek language is zetesis. It's a word which carries the idea of a searching or a lively discussion. It's sort of like the debates, the presidential debates that you get on TV these days between the Republicans and the Democrats, where they're asking questions and all of a sudden the voices are starting to rise and they're getting a little bit shrill and they're starting to get, you know, a a lively discussion. It might even be translated an argument like in the NIV. But they're talking about it. So how does a young man cleanse his way? In Psalm 119, verse 9, it says... By taking heed according to your word, whatever it means to experience forgiveness and freedom from guilt, the place that you have to begin is by a willingness to hear from God and to hear what God has to say about the subject. So, we're all going to get a cleansing from somewhere or we're not. With the knowledge of right and wrong comes the experience of doing what is right or wrong. So how do we dissolve guilt? How do we make it go away? Again, we find cleansing in Christ. Not in religious ritual or even religious obligation. It's not going to church. It's not giving to charity. It's not even doing good deeds. It's not being loyal to one man's teaching or leadership. 
And you'll notice even in John's case, they, they said all are coming to him. Their love and their loyalty is to John. And it makes it difficult for them to follow Jesus. Now, that concept might seem very foreign to you. But have you ever met someone who is more loyal to their religion than they were to Christ? Have you ever met someone that it was more important to them that they were a Catholic or they were a Protestant, that they were a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Methodist than Jesus? Are John's disciples envious? Do they see Jesus as some upstart rabbi, a competitor who gains popularity at their master's expense? John, you're the one who put Jesus in ministry. You know, Jesus got his start in ministry by John's recommendation. Everyone's going to Jesus. Our numbers are going way down. His numbers are going way up. What are we going to do? Charles Swindoll writes, quote, John's disciples are feeling the crunch of competition. But instead of inventing some glitzy gimmick to recapture the thinning multitudes, John pulls a different strategy out of his camel hair sleeve, unquote. I like that. Well, what do we do? Should we go with hot tubs? Make baptism really comfortable? Should we go for a new look? Should we go on Israeli TV? What should we do? John's going to do what needs to be done. He's going to remind them of the purpose of his ministry and point them back to Jesus. Look at verse 27. Jesus, the only bridegroom, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. He basically says, get your head on straight. I need you to think about what you are saying. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You see, part of the challenge is always, well, why is this person succeeding and I am failing? It must be because I'm not a very good teacher. It must be because something's wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the ministry. There's something wrong with the life. There's something wrong with the, with the location. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, for what gives you the right to make such a judgment? Why do you have, what do you have that God hasn't given to you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Everything that you have comes from the Lord. You know what that would also include? Everything you don't have. And verse 28 says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Do you remember, John? He's saying, look, I never claimed to be the Christ. Remember, I am the one who's coming to clear the way. Remember, I'm the one who's coming to prepare the way. And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time to get out of the way. In verse 29 and 30, it says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus is the bridegroom. And by the way, that makes you the bride. Yes, men, even you. I know that might rub you the wrong way, but remember what it means. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the constant companion. The bride is the church. And the friend of the bridegroom is the Jewish equivalent of our best man. You have to understand something. In Jewish culture and in Jewish tradition, the friend of the bridegroom was the go-between, the liaison between the bride and the groom. When I do a wedding here... Typically, the way that a ceremony begins is the mothers are seated, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen come down, and then the bride makes her way down the aisle. And at the beginning of the service, I'll typically say, who brings this woman to be married to this man? And the father of the bride will typically say, her mother and I. 
In Jewish culture and society, the father of the bride does not give the bride away. Guess who gives the bride away? The friend of the groom. The friend's duties went way beyond the best man. The friend of the groom was responsible for bringing the bride to the groom. As a matter of fact, the friend would arrange the details of the wedding. The friend of the groom would send the invitations, would send the announcements. The friend of the groom would preside over the marriage feast, much like a master of ceremonies. And his special duty, his special, special duty was to guard the bridal chamber. In other words, no one, no one could slip in except for the bride. Now, this is interesting. Because during the midst of the festivities, in the heat, if you will, of the joy and the celebration, guess what would happen? The bride would disappear. One minute she's there, and the next minute she's gone. And she goes to the bridal chamber to join the groom. There seems to be a great deal of evidence in ancient Mesopotamian law that the friend of the bridegroom was forbidden, forbidden, forbidden under any circumstances to marry the bride, even if the bridegroom rejected her. To whom much is given, much is required. Imagine the bride, the friend of the bridegroom is placed in an enormous position of authority and responsibility in ministry. You know, in our culture and society, there are crimes that people commit. Particularly crimes against children. Now, if you are a teacher or if you are a counselor, if you are a person in a position of trust, does it make the crime that much more heinous? That's exactly right. John is in effect saying, God has put me in a position of trust. How can I violate that trust? And sometime later, the marriage was consummated and the groom would shout out the fact with joy. And upon hearing the groom's voice, the friend of the groom would go. My job is over with. I'm done here. It's very different from our culture and society. He'd step out of the way. Because his job was over with. How about you? Are you willing to be the announcer? Are you willing to be the voice from the sideline of the show? You hear on radio or television. Starring Brad Pitt and Angela Jolie. This time it's for real. And you go, who is that guy? Who's that announcer guy? We never hear the name of the announcer guy. The announcer guy always introduces the star. Are you willing to be the announcer guy? The announcer girl? Are you willing to give Jesus the spotlight, the center stage, the top billing? This is what John is called to do. This is what John must do. And how can you tell if Jesus is truly first in your life? How can you tell if he is the master and he's getting the top billing? One measure is your contentment with being second. Because the truth is, if you're experiencing envy and jealousy and discontentment, if it bothers you, if it bothers you that your husband loves Jesus more than you, if it bothers you that your wife loves Jesus more than you, if it bothers you that your children love Jesus more than you, are you willing, are you able, are you allowing Jesus to be number one? So how does John deal with his inflamed disciples? How does John quench the conversation? And diffuse the competitive spirit. Again, Charles Swindoll points out that John the Baptist reminds them of four things. Number one, that God is sovereign, that God is in control over human beings. In verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. 
You get what you get from God. Second, all work is significant. All work of the kingdom. But only one work is preeminent in verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. I have a job to do. And I have done my job. But there is a job that's more important. And that's the job of Jesus. And third, joy comes from being obedient. Not from getting glory in verse 29. Fourth, humility calls attention to Christ and not to self in verse 30. Jealousy and envy are words that we often use interchangeably. But there really is a difference between jealousy and envy. Envy begins with empty hands. Mourning for what it doesn't have. Jealousy is quite different. It begins with full hands, but it's threatened by the loss of plenty. It is the pain of losing what I have to someone else. Lord, I thought that was for me. I thought that I thought that was for me. I thought you were giving that to me. But John says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Most Bible teachers focus on increase and decrease. But once again, you know what I'm surprised by? The word must. Remember what we've already seen in John chapter 3? The sinner must be born again in verse 7. The Savior must be lifted up in verse 14. The searcher must believe that Jesus is the Son of God in verses 16 and 17. But now we see another must. The servant must decrease. The sinner must be born again. The Savior must be lifted up. The searcher must believe in Jesus. The servant servant must decrease. And that, by the way, is John's greatness. He goes up by going down. He becomes greater by becoming lesser. And that, by the way, is the practical lesson for all of us. It's the lesson of self-effacement in the presence of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, you're less. He's more. All personal promotion pales before John's magnificent statement. He must increase. I must decrease. During the Civil War, there was an interesting, interesting story. Many of you know about the Northern War of Aggression against the South. And there was a a particular time when General Sherman marched from the inside of Georgia all the way to the sea. And as he was cutting a path of destruction, it pretty much wiped out the South's ability to wage war. At that time, they appointed as the head of a particular task force a general named O.O. Howard. And they removed the command from one particular person and gave it to Howard. And he he did what he had to do. And it came time for Washington and the parade. And General Sherman was saying to Howard, hey, the powers that be and the politicos, they basically want to give the guy who had your command the right to march in front of his troops. And O.O. Howard said, I am their commander. I have earned the right to lead them. And General Sherman said, Howard, you're a Christian. You can live with the disappointment. And Howard said, well, when you put it that way, fine. He can have the glory. And then Sherman said, by the way, I want you to meet, meet, meet me at 0900. Because um, I want you to ride with me at the head of the army. By becoming less... He became more. By the way, in this particular passage of Scripture, guess who's leading God's army? At this point, it's John the Baptist. He is the point man. He is the head. He is the primary person. But guess what he's willing to do? Become less. R. Kent Hughes writes, are we being eclipsed? 
or in the process of being eclipsed, it will happen. Is someone or some group the focus of our envy? Is there someone whose success we secretly begrudge? God has called us to a proper philosophy. A man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. He has called us to a proper attitude. The friend who attends the bridegroom is full of joy. He has called us to the proper conduct. He must become greater. I must become less. And then we see Jesus, the only one from heaven. Look at verse 31. It says, he who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John is making a statement not simply about the source, but also about the nature of authority. He is basically saying, guess what? When I talk, it's because God has spoken to me. But Jesus came from heaven. By the way, Jesus is the only one who's come down from heaven. Not Krishna, not Buddha. Not Muhammad, not the false and failed philosophies of human being. Only one person, one person has come down from heaven to the earth. And so here Christianity parts company with every so-called religion. Other religions claim higher revelation. But Jesus is that revelation. Jesus makes known God to human beings. That's the difference between Jesus and every other religious leader. In verse 32, John says, and what he has seen and heard, what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. Now, listen carefully to what he's saying to his own disciples and what he has seen and heard. He testifies. Jesus is hearing directly from God and he's telling anyone who's willing to listen what God is saying. And look what it says. No one receives his testimony. The revelation of Jesus as the supreme master isn't easily received. Even by John's own disciples. Do you understand what's happening? The world fails to understand and refuses to recognize the revelation of God in Jesus. The world is saturated and soaked in an an envelope of darkness, blinded by its own fallen condition, its anger with the light, its desire to destroy those who respond to the light. And John is shaking them up and saying, don't you remember who we are and what we are? His disciples' response, we're Baptists. I remember when I first came into ministry, I was flying from California to Albuquerque. Then I was on a plane and we started talking about ministry. And there was this guy behind me and we were talking about ministry. And he said to me, do you know what I'd be if I wasn't a Baptist? I said, no, no. What what would you be? He said, I'd be thoroughly ashamed of myself. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't matter, quote unquote. It isn't about Catholicism or Protestantism or Presbyterianism or 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 Methodism or Baptist. And in other words, here is the point that is taking place in the issue. And I I need you to go back to, to what's being debated here. What is the subject of debate? Purification, cleansing, having freedom from sin and a right relationship with God. How do you get it? By being a Baptist? Or by being baptized? It comes from Jesus. He's pointing people to Jesus. The revelation of Jesus as the the supreme master. And in verse 33, look what it says. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Look again. He who has received his testimony, that is, those who have listened to Jesus and believed Jesus, they know that God is true, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Who did God send? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever 
believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Remember verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that through him, the world might be saved. It was God who sent Jesus. Now, this is interesting because he says. For God does not give the spirit by measure. This is interesting for several reasons, because do you remember when Elizabeth conceived in her old age, John the Baptist? The Bible says that he was filled with the spirit, the Holy Spirit from inside of his mother's womb. Do you remember when Mary came and visited and she was pregnant with the Savior and John the Baptist left within his mother's womb because he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? There's a reason why Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest human being who has ever been born. In Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was given with a measure or with a condition God had a plan for Samson. God had a plan for David. God had a plan for Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And he gave the Spirit in in direct proportion to the need that was necessary. A certain measure, but the full measure of the Spirit is reserved only for God's chosen one. Jesus Christ, the Lord. In the Hebrew mindset, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God served a lot of different functions, but there are two primary functions of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God revealed truth to human beings. And the second one is that the Spirit of God helped or enabled human beings to recognize and understand that truth when it came to them. So the ministry of of, of the Holy Spirit is to reveal truth to human beings and then to convince them that that the truth is in fact true. Do you realize the moment that you go, the Bible's true. The things that the Bible says about Jesus is true. Jesus really is the Lord. Jesus really came to the earth and died for my sins. Jesus really rose from the dead. It's true. That's exactly the role of the Holy Spirit. And look, Jesus is the only one who determines human history. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Do you realize that that scripture, the Father loves the Son, is one of the most important scriptures concerning the Trinity? Love is impossible unless there's an object and a subject. Otherwise, this should read, the Father loves himself. Does that make sense? No. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit, but there's only one God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Well, hasn't He he given some of the stuff to John and the Baptists? All things into His hand. Another way of, of reading this would be, the Father loves the Son and has not withheld anything from the Son. Jesus gets all honor, all glory. Do you understand? Judgment belongs to Jesus. Life belongs to Jesus. Forgiveness belongs to Jesus. Think carefully about the context. Cleansing belongs to Jesus. Later, Peter will write that it isn't the outward washing of the flesh that cleanses the soul, but it's the inward washing of the spirit. The only person who can wash your soul is Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you understand what's happening? John is giving an altar call to his disciples. Rabbi, we're Baptists. You don't have to give us an altar call. Apparently I do. Envy, jealousy, selfishness are certain signs that 
Jesus isn't number one. If you find yourself absolutely inundated with jealousy, overwhelmed by envy, consumed by selfishness, chances are Jesus isn't the master. John is calling everyone who doubts. John is calling everyone who disbelieves to come off the fence and get right with God. Even among his own disciples. God's called me to clear the way. God's called me to prepare the way. God's called me to get out of the way and point people to Jesus. There's an eternal choice. Judgment or salvation. By the way, I want you to look closely where it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. It isn't just simply life that goes on forever and ever and ever. It is a quality of life in relationship to a person. And look what it says. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. By the way, that word wrath appears only here in the whole Gospel of John. This is the one and only time. In the book of Revelation, he writes about wrath seven times. But here it's only this one time. Grace precedes judgment. All through history, God has set before human beings a choice. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, Moses says to the children of Israel, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in this land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give to them. Sound familiar? John saying the same thing to his own disciples. This section is really about the supremacy of the Savior. Only Jesus can purify a man's heart. Only Jesus can cleanse sin. It isn't the ritual of purification from the Jews. It isn't even the baptism of John. It isn't even the baptism of the disciples. It's Jesus. Remember it as a picture of Jesus. Our identification with Jesus. When we are baptized, we identify with Jesus in his life. And we identify with Jesus in his death. And we identify Jesus in his resurrection. By the way, no one wants to admit that they're competing with Jesus for the love and the loyalty of the congregation. No one wants to admit, I am in competition with Jesus. But I want you to think carefully. When you take something that belongs to Jesus and you keep it for yourself, you are in competition with Jesus. What is it that you're taking from Jesus that belongs to Him and to Him only? He's the only Lord, He's the only Master. 
William Law once suggested that great Puritan preacher that it's impossible to harbor bitterness or animosity or jealousy towards one whom for whom we're praying. He wrote, if someone is leaving you behind and you're becoming jealous and embittered, keep praying that he may have the success in the very matter where he is awakening your envy. And whether he is helped or not, one thing is sure that your own soul will be cleansed and ennobled and that you will grow a little nearer to the stature of the Baptist. He's basically saying, are you envious or jealous of a person because they have something that you don't? Then you pray for them and you thank God that God has given to them whatever it is that God has given it, given it to them. And now, once again, John returns to his favorite theme. What matters is a man's reaction to Christ. If that reaction is love and longing, that man will know life. If it's indifference or hostility, that man already knows death. It is not that God sent his wrath upon him. It is that he brings that wrath upon himself. Choose. Life. Everyone's going to have to serve someone. It will be the devil. Or it will be the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that our master would be the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus deserves to be our master. He is the only one who came down from heaven. He's the only one who speaks the words of God. He's the only one who never, ever, no, never, ever makes a mistake. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray. For that person who finds themselves with a heart preoccupied with envy. With a heart preoccupied with jealousy. With a heart preoccupied with selfishness. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would make Jesus both Lord and Master. Lord, I pray that we could get our head on straight. And that we could get our heart on straight. And that we would understand that whatever a person has, God gave it to them. And we would understand that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Lord, give us the courage and the strength to point people to Jesus and away from ourselves. In Jesus' name.